Donald Trump's impeachment trial continues in the US Senate. We'll have the latest for you from Washington. One of Hungary's last remaining independent radio stations is ordered off the air. We'll assess the implications for press freedom in the country. And a lunchtime overhaul in France as employees are encouraged to break a long-standing workday principle by eating lunch at their desks. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle. 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to today's edition of the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 10th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today to review some of the day's top news stories are Monocle's culture editor Chiara Rumella and our news editor Chris Chermak. Chris, Chiara, great to have you both with us on the programme. How do we find you both on this Wednesday afternoon? Chiara, you first. Well, I've got to say, by at this point in London, uh, through lockdown, just a good weather day can change your life. So waking up and seeing the sunshine has been amazing. But also, I think in general, we're gathering kind of momentum going into our April issue. And I've got a few stories that I'm really excited and proud about. And uh, a lot of them have got to do with press freedom, actually. So I'm looking forward to discussing that topic a bit later with you today. And Chris, an equally life-changing day for you so far, as we heard from Chiara there. How's the week treating you? Life-changing day. That's a strong comment, Thomas. I don't know quite about that, but I will back up the uh, the weather remark. It's nice to have a sort of sunny, if frigid day. I always find, personally, that the winters are better when, even if they're cold, as long as they're sunny, I find that's so much more manageable. But um, on the topic of April, um, I can also only back what Kara said. Uh, I'm personally also quite excited. We're going to be interviewing the UN Secretary General for the Affairs section, and I'll be doing that next week. So uh, look forward to that for the April issue. It's going to be a good one. And just to dwell on the weather briefly before we move on to the meat and potatoes of our discussion. Today it was snowing in London this week, I believe. Did either of you indulge in any snowball fights, any snowmen built in the Ramella backyard? No, but I've got to say that I grew my first icicle (laughs) on my window. I was quite proud of it. You know, my house has never been home to an icicle before. And there I was, you know, looking out the window with this massive stalagmite or stalatite, I never know. <laughs> this massive shard of glass. So it's quite a proud moment, I've got to say. And I can only say that I was quite determined, despite the snow, to take a bike ride on Sunday to Richmond Park in southern in southern London, which was an experience in itself. I did not fall off. I did not slide and slip. Um, and it was quite interesting to see the barren snowscaped landscape of uh, Richmond Park. Chris Chermak in one piece, I'm glad to say, and Chiara Romella, available for all your icicle growing needs here on the late edition. Thank you very much, the two of you, for being with us on the programme today. Well, we begin in Washington, D.C., where the second day of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate is underway. Yesterday, the Democrats reminded senators in graphic detail of the attack on the Capitol, which Donald Trump, they argue, incited. Stop the steal! Stop the steal! Stop the steal! Stop the steal! 
just some sound for you there from a video that the Democratic managers of the impeachment trial showed to senators to remind them of the carnage many of them witnessed at first hand or at least close by. We'll discuss the strategies that have been deployed so far in the impeachment trial in a moment. But first, Chris, you are monitoring the proceedings for us from Midori House in London. What's the latest from Capitol Hill on this second day of the trial? Well, Tomas, yesterday, the first day of the impeachment trial was focused really on this debate simply over constitutionality, whether the trial was constitutional or not. With that out of the way, with uh, Democrats and some Republicans voting that the trial was indeed constitutional, uh, today uh, they really got sort of down to business. Uh, The House impeachment managers have been spending the last few hours really laying out their case in in quite a bit of detail. And they've been doing this by using a mix of approaches, I'd say. On the one hand, they've been using Donald Trump's own words and actions, not just on the day of the the attack on the Capitol, but also in the run-up to it, you know, things like him pressuring the Justice Department to overturn the result of the elections, um, you know, anything that sort of undermined the credibility of a, of the November election that would therefore also give his supporters this feeling that, you know, doing something like uh, attacking the Capitol would really be the only the only thing that they could do. Um, so that's one side of the argument. And then the other hi- other side of the argument, they're really highlighting the words of the rioters themselves. You know, the simple goal in that sense has been really to link the two together, to make this case that these rioters felt that they were acting on Donald Trump's behalf. Uh, and, you know, they, they've played in that sense, uh, you know, one of the House impeachment managers played this clip uh, from the trial uh, earlier this evening. It was his duty as commander in chief to stop the violence. And he alone had that power not just because of his unique role as commander-in-chief, but because they believed that they were following his orders. They said so. I thought I was following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. President Trump requested that we be in D.C. on the 6th. This really is at the heart of this trial for Democrats. Donald Trump's lawyers and Republicans are arguing, you know, that Donald Trump's actions and words amounted to political speech, to free speech, and that he never intentionally incited violence because he never, you know, in that sense, expressly called for the uh, Capitol's walls to be breached. He never used those kinds of direct violent words. Um, and there is one point in his speech on on uh, January 6th where he did say, you know, they should protest peacefully. Um, Republicans are also in that sense going to argue that any rioters that are now saying they were heeding Donald Trump's words are really trying to save themselves to escape conviction in court for their crimes and in that sense escape responsibility for their own actions. But, you know, I have to say, Thomas, when you listen to these clips today, particularly from the rioters on the very day that they did storm the Capitol, well, it's really going to be a tough case for Trump's lawyers to make. 
And Chiara, the Democrats are weighing pretty heavily on the emotion that the attack on the 6th of January churned up. Uh, We're going to hear a clip now of Jamie Raskin. He's the congressman from Maryland, who is the lead manager in the Senate for this impeachment trial. As we'll hear now, he fought back tears during his introductory marks yesterday on the opening day of the trial. I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. (laughs) Of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day, and since then, that one hit me the hardest. The Democratic Congressman Jamie Ruskin there fighting to hold back the tears, as it was clear to hear during the opening day of Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the US Senate yesterday. Kiara, what do you make of the, the parallel strategies here by the Democrats and the Republicans? If the Democrats are trying to evoke the gravity of what took place on the 6th of January by emphasising the emotional effect it all had then the Republicans, it seems to me, are effectively trying to dismiss it, I suppose it's fair to say, as a mere piece of political theatre. Which do you think is likely to be the most effective? Well, I think it's inevitable that the Democrats would go down this route Part, for, for different reasons, partly because I think this impeachment trial compared to the first one is one that is anchored in something that is likely to have thrown up a lot of emotions for a lot of Americans. And so we're not really talking technicalities and phone calls and things that most people can't really follow. But this is quite straightforward and incendiary. And most people have seen what happened, have an emotional connection to what happened. So it's difficult, I guess, to separate the facts from the emotions of the day. Secondly, there is the fact that most people who are saying these things and are listening to these things were there on the day. And it's, again, very hard to make a procedure of this kind um, be completely emotionless if the people are very much kind of involved, have been involved all the way through. Whilst the Republicans are obviously uh, focusing on the events that took place on the day, I found that much of the um, Republican response has largely focused on rather drier aspects of the whole situation. So they're very much talking about how unconstitutional the whole thing is. So they're not really taking issue with the events themselves. It will be hard to justify the the actual events that took place, though some people have said that the video was basically not directly fake, but definitely spliced for effect, um, because the video shown was indeed combining clips of Trump's speech with the actual events that followed and, and, and unraveled very shortly afterwards at the Capitol. But a lot of the conversation from the Republican side seemed to focus on this is unconstitutional because Trump by now is a private citizen. He's no longer in office. This has no meaning and is, in fact, a political prosecution. So it's not so much that the events on a day aren't condemnable, but that this is irrelevant in the first place. And I have got to say that there are reports that Trump himself was quite underwhelmed by the um, performance of his own um, lawyers. And 
many people have remarked that the performance of the lawyers was quite rambling and not very coherent. So it's difficult to say <laughs> whether the Republican response and the defense response has been um, quite so damning of the emotional side of it more than just taking a completely different tack. And as from you know the point of view of someone who did watch the video um, in its entirety, it's... Um, It's a relatively long video. It's about 12 minutes, I think. And, you know, it is affecting. It's very emotionally affecting. It's quite chilling. There are images in there that I personally hadn't even seen from other video reports of of the capital. And I think it does have the, 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 the intended effect. I found it very, very chilling and, yeah, emotionally quite impactful. Well, we will have more for you on day two of the impeachment trial of former US President Donald Trump on tomorrow's edition of The Globalist. That begins live from London at 7am London time. Well, next here on the late edition, in Hungary, one of the country's last remaining independent radio stations will be taken off the air on Valentine's Day after a court upheld a government decision not to renew its broadcasting licence. The demise of Club Radio has raised deep concerns among press freedom activists in Hungary and elsewhere. Well, earlier today, we spoke to Justin Spike, the AP's Budapest correspondent, who had more for us on the story. Listeners might be familiar with a quite a prominent case last year when uh, the largest online news site called Index.hu basically folded, and, and not folded, but all of its staff did a mass walkout, around 70 people, journalists and editors. They resigned simultaneously because they felt that The outlet had come under political influence, but what they did is they crowdfunded the foundation of a brand new website, which is now up and running and has very quickly in the course of about four months become one of the most popular news websites in the country. So there are means to practice journalism freely in Hungary. It's very difficult and the space is shrinking all the time, but there are ways to go about it. The concern is the government uh, under the patronage of Mr. Orban is making it increasingly difficult for them to do so, placing journalists under a lot of pressure that some would say in a more free society they would not have to confront. Justin Spike there speaking to us on the briefing today. Chris, there's been a strain for some time now between Hungary and the European Union on several fronts. How does the plight of Club Radio in this instance play into that relationship as it is at the moment between Hungary and the EU, would you say? Well, there was a very specific response. Uh, f for one thing that I can say, the EU Commission spokesman uh, commented on this uh, today as well, saying that they had expressed their concerns about media freedom in Hungary, that the case of Club Radio only aggravates our concerns. Um, they said that they've been in contact with Hungarian authorities to ensure that the radio can continue to operate legally. Uh, and that they expect member states to ensure that fiscal or other policies will not affect their duty to ensure a free, independent and diverse media ecosystem. So that's a little bit of the specific response from the EU today. And yes, this does fall into a much broader debate that has been going on between Hungary and the European Union And it has to be said, um, Poland as well, because I think uh, it's important to mention that at this point too. Poland is in the news today for uh, suggesting a uh, levy on private media advertising, uh, which is also something that uh, critics would say 
is aimed at undermining a free press because many of the state media actually get subsidies from the government, while private media are now facing essentially another tax to undermine their ability to be financially viable. Both of these are important because really Poland and Hungary have been at loggerheads with the European Union over efforts to undermine uh, the free press and also a free judiciary. And it's really, uh, aside from this response, though, it is hard to say exactly what the European Union is going to be able to do. It already has uh, cases running against Hungary under what's called Article 7, um, to sort of look at whether uh, efforts there to undermine media freedoms and judiciary freedoms should have a stronger response from the European Union. There was also an effort to link this to budgetary funds back in December, um, which some people may remember was was actually quite a big fight where the Hungary and Poland uh, tried to veto the European Commission's budget um, as well as pandemic funds because Europe wanted to link um, the link the providing of those funds to uh, rule of law. That's something they sort of succeeded in doing. Rule of law is one of the elements to, uh, you know, g- giving member states money, but it's something that was delayed because it'll have to be uh, sort of uh, checked by the courts first. So it's also something that the European Union cannot do right at the moment. All of this is just a long way of saying that this this is an ongoing fight. Um, and it's very tricky for the European Union to operate in part because Poland and Hungary tend to operate almost as one on many of these issues. So if you try and uh, challenge Hungary, Poland is going to step up and potentially veto any action that you take and vice versa. So it is a tricky one. And this case of Club Radio really just sort of plays into that as one of the last remaining independent uh, radio stations in Hungary. Uh, so it, it bears watching, but it's tricky to see what the European Union will really be able to do. And Chiara, Club Radio will be able to continue broadcasting on the internet, as Chris mentioned there. But there is something quite powerful, isn't there, and symbolic, I suppose, about being taken off the, the analogue airwaves, off the transmitters, isn't there? I wonder what you think that says about this idea of press freedom, which isn't, of course, only an issue for Hungary, but an issue that we're seeing time and again in Europe more broadly. I think it opens up a lot of really interesting questions about what then Orban's um, attitudes towards digital media is going to be. Um, Because, yes, as you say, it's a very symbolic uh, thing and it will play into Club Radio's image in the sense that it will make it, it will push it outside of the mainstream inevitably. But it might also give it this extra... Um, importance as a piece of resistance, a little bit of like an outsider's resistance portal. Um, in, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the many outlets that have made this their point of pride. And in a way, it can be a differentiator and, you know, something that can wish, that, that can bode well for their audience in certain respects. But as you say, yes, it's it's a real blow, obviously. There's no denying that this is a negative thing. I'm just trying to think about how this can actually be made into something for the journalists themselves. It's interesting also to note that radio has been consistently voted as the most trusted media over the last few years. It's 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 interesting because obviously that specific format says a lot about you know what kind of media people are most likely to believe in to trust. 
and therefore the, the kind of media that people might feel most threatened by. But when you move things to the digital realm, you know, in the case of Orban, you know, quite literally he, will, he, he might lose quite so much direct influence about them. Of course, there is an issue of financing, as, you know, Chris was talking about before, and that's fundamental because a lot of the reduction in press freedoms over the last few years in Hungary has got to do with this fact that outlets have been controlled by by wealthy business people who are linked to him, and therefore it's an issue of financing and ownership a lot. That's, that's often got to do with the reason why these are aligned with the government, other than direct censorship. But I think it's it's really interesting because, for example, Orban himself was, um, you know, f- reportedly feeling threatened after Donald Trump's social media profiles were blocked by Twitter, Facebook, and and all the other social media platforms because he is himself very active on Facebook. He's used it very much to transmit his information, and he's very scared <laughs> of being blocked and censored there. So he's kind of carrying out, uh, you know, very very ironically, this campaign for freedom of speech on digital media because he's saying that you know conservative leaning voices are being censored by these large tech players and he's trying to curb these tech players while at the very same time himself curbing freedom of speech elsewhere. So it would be interesting to see in what way these digital platforms may actually be curbed moving forward because that could be something that's actually detrimental to Orban himself. If he does curb it too much, it will be curbing his own mouthpiece to a certain extent. So we'll have to see what the move to digital and you know, the move to forcing people onto social media to get their information if they're not getting it from official sources that are able to operate in an analogue realm you know, what that will actually mean. Well, finally, here on today's programme, it's long past lunchtime, long past dinner time, actually, too, here on the late edition. But in France, employees who are allowed to go back to work at the office are being asked to do something that would have been unthinkable and indeed illegal only a few weeks ago. That is to eat lunch at their desks. The tweak to France's workplace laws has been made in response to Covid restrictions still in place in parts of the country. Well, with more on this, we spoke a little earlier today to the author and strategist Rahaf Harfouche, who specialises in workplace culture and who spoke to us with her reaction from Paris. I really believe that it is important to have these types of rules in place, even though, you know, they're not super strictly enforced. It's not like if you eat at your desk one time, the police are going to drag you away. It was more of a of a symbol as to where France put its priority. And the priority was on like living a good life, right? And not necessarily chasing this hyper productivity work culture that we seem to be obsessed with in so many parts of the world. Rahaf Arfouche there speaking to The Globalist this morning. Chris, it's worth noting to our listeners that we aren't proponents of eating lunch at your desk here at Monocle either. But in the US, it's seen as slightly wild to not eat lunch at your workstation, I guess. And you have direct experience of that. I do, Thomas. I have to say, I really love this story because I've experienced it from both ends. I started my work career, if you will, in the US, in Washington, D.C., where, yes, we essentially, as journalists, even we, we ate at our desks. Uh, that, was, that was pretty common. We had a kitchen, but we didn't particularly use it. It was just, 
it was just sort of understood. It wasn't necessarily something that, you know, somebody would look at you really strangely if you leave and you go somewhere else to eat. But it was just sort of expected. It was just the normal thing to do. And then from there, uh, switching and coming to Germany and moving to Frankfurt uh, and joining a media outlet there, I just remember the first time I was so shocked when, when, when one of my colleagues just said, all right, I'm, I'm getting up, I'm off to lunch, I'll see you in an hour. And, I, and it, just, it was just this sort of shocking realization, like, oh, we can do that? We're, we're allowed to leave and, you know, we, we can actually have a lunch break? Wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. And, you know, since then, I have to say, you know, I've, I've obviously taken to that um, quite well. I think it's hugely important to have that break in the middle of the day. Um, in the middle of a workday, it's just so rejuvenating, um, I have to say. So that's what I'd say to any former American colleagues or current people working in the U.S. The, for me, this isn't just about, you know, the, the sort of life aspect that uh, Rahaf Harfouche talked about there. It's also about kind of just recharging your batteries, isn't it, in the middle of a day in order to be more productive again in the afternoon. So whatever the law, uh, however the law is being adopted or changed in France now, I do hope people just still take that little bit of a break uh, from work in the middle of their day. And Kiara, I guess given that many of us are working from home at the moment, having that break is is a complicated thing sometimes, given the time we're in. And I suppose it's not as much a case of eating lunch at your desk right now, but as working from your dining table, from your lunch space. How are you now navigating the the homework lunch routine. Actually, Tom, I I wrote a, a story for our own monocle on design about this, and um, which is about the fact that I only have one table at my house, and it works for every single need that I have. So you know, it's breakfast, then work, then lunch, then work again, then leisurely like wine glass over Zoom with my friends kind of place. It's interesting, and I think I've had to go to extra lengths to really find a way to define that space. And, and I, 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 as I said in that story at the time, I found stationery really helped. So having a proper stationery set up that signals work time was very important to me, having the right pens in the right order, the diary on the side. And then once lunch, lunch break time struck, um, I just have to put it all away. Even if it is just off the workspace, you know, you know, table, it has to be out of my sight. You know, I live in a relatively small flat where that table is also constantly looming. It's all it's always there if I'm just sitting on the sofa as well. So also there is no way to kind of detach yourself from that space. So just little tiny design touches can make all the difference. Just close the laptop, put it away. And, you know, get the bowl out (laughs) and tuck into your pasta for lunch. It's even better, actually, I found, if you do cook your own lunch at lunchtime, I've been tempted into, I guess, like pre-preparing so that I can be more efficient and actually maximise our time by just, you know, cooking what I've already, eating what I've already prepared. But if you take the time to actually cook your own lunch, you force yourself into the kitchen, you clear your mind, it can be a lovely break. So that's the way I do it. And it's been working out all right. 
Glad to hear it. Chiara Romella's lunch tips here on the late edition. I think we should make that a bit of a regular feature going forward. Chiara and Chris Chermak, thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That's all for today's edition of the late edition. A big thank you too to Sam Impey, who edited today's programme in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>